The reality is leadership absolutely is connected to the business because at the ground level, it's a partner. If you're dealing with paralegals and investigators who don't feel connected to you and don't want to support the thing that you're after, efficiency is down, uh, quality of work is down, engagement is down. If you're managing the practice group or the office or the firm, all of those things impact engagement and turnover. Turnover is a huge business cost. And all of those things also impact your client acquisition and retention. So you can tie leadership to any KPI you want just about, but what people forget is that it's not a soft skill. It, it's an absolutely critical business imperative, as well as a moral imperative. I, I say it's a moral imperative because I think that every person in a position of responsibility has an obligation to take care of those around them. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Our guest today is a former U.S. Army helicopter pilot and military attorney, federal government leader, Columbia Law School lecturer, and recognized professional expert. Now a coach and consultant, this lawyer is providing lawyers and law firms the framework to shift performance and culture by developing its leaders through trust, transparency, empathy, and passion. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads and founder of BKG Leadership, Ben Grimes. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm really excited to talk with you. I'm excited to talk with you as well. For all of our listeners, Ben and I actually just met over the summer at a dinner with him at the PDC conference in North Carolina. And Ben and I sat at the same table, although we were far away from each other. But I was listening in on a conversation Ben was part of, and he was telling his story. And I was like, what? And I had to stop everything I was doing and interrupt and say, wait, what is your story? And can you be on my podcast? So thank you, Ben. For being here today. You bet. You bet. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you. Awesome. I like to ask every guest before we start, set the tone, a little bit of gratitude, a little bit of slice of life from you to get from your gratitude. So what is your favorite thing that happened today so far? I, I've got two things to share with you. The first is this morning, I woke up uh, a little bit early as I often do because I have two dogs and I spent about 45 minutes sitting with my stinky little beagle in my lap this morning. And as much as I tell my family, I hate that dog, I hate that dog. <laughs> um, and so I got to sit this morning and drink some coffee with my stinky beagle. The second thing I want to share with you today is actually my birthday. We're recording on my birthday and I'm really excited to, to do it with you. I've been looking forward to this conversation since we met at PDC. This is a, a treat for me. I don't think I've ever recorded with someone on their birthday, and I feel so honored that I get to do this with you. So this is fantastic. Happy birthday, Ben. Thank you. So Ben, can you share with our listeners your lawyer origin story? Yeah, my lawyer origin story overlaps with my leadership story, and both of them are accidental. I didn't want to be a lawyer until I went to law school. That's the long and short of it in terms of my lawyer journey. But it overlaps with my leadership story because I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I didn't know what I was going to do for college when I was graduating from high school. I didn't know how to pay for college. And I was looking for some, somehow to go to school for free because I really thought at that age, 
I really thought that your family just had to have the money for college. And we didn't. I grew up pretty poor. I was the oldest of four kids. My mom was a single parent social worker. There was not a lot going on at the house in terms of resources and opportunity. And I don't know where my high school guidance counselor was in the picture, but I really had no idea how I was going to get to college. And I heard about West Point, the United States Military Academy. It's a great school. Uh, it's also free if you can get in. And so I got an early decision and never applied anywhere else, ended up going to West Point. But that, that set me on a leadership journey into the Army and through a 20-year career in the Army. And as part of that journey, I started out as a helicopter pilot. That was a lot of fun, as you can imagine. But a few years into that service as a pilot, I realized I wasn't going to fly forever, that the army was going to ask me to do other things. So not just pilot stuff, but like staff officer stuff, doing HR and logistics and things like that. And about the same time that I realized my flying career was not going to lead to anything. I heard about a program that the army has to pay for law school for a, about two dozen officers every year. And I applied for that and got into it um, because I decided if I'm going to be a staff officer in the army, I might as well be the staffiest staff officer there is. And there's nothing staffier than a lawyer. Um, and so I found this opportunity to get paid to go to school. I jumped on it. I got accepted. And the rest of it is lawyer leadership history. I then finished out my military career as a military attorney. I got to prosecute. I got to defend. I got to teach. I got to do intelligence law. It was my entry into legal ethics. And that led me to where I am today. Fantastic. One of the things that you said is that you realized that the flying couldn't lead to anything. Is that normal? So what I mean by that is there are two classes of officers who are pilots. There are commissioned officers, which is what I was. And then there are warrant officers and warrant officers are the folks who fly full time. That is their job for guys like me who were commissioned officers. Flying was part of the leadership package. And so I started as a platoon leader. So I was flying and responsible for the leadership management development and training of about 20 or 30 soldiers and warrant officers. We had three aircraft that we were responsible for. So these are million dollar aircraft that we were, were responsible for. And part of the officer kind of career trajectory is to go from that platoon leader to company commander, to other staff officer, and, and to grow into greater positions of responsibility, but along the way to also take on these other logistical administrative responsibilities to grow your skill set beyond the cockpit. And when you look when a pilot looks beyond military service, then you're looking at how many jobs are out there for helicopter pilots outside of the army or the other military services. And they're just saying you know, there aren't that many. And the ones that are available in my mind, we're going to go to those warrant officers who spent 20 years flying rather than my six or seven intermittent years flying. And then you said you ended your career in the military as a military attorney. Can you just share a little bit about that experience? Oh, yeah. So a military attorney does a lot of different things. I spent most of my time doing criminal law. The first year and a half or so, I was doing ethics and internal compliance investigations and things like that. But then I got into a prosecution job. And the military, as a military attorney, you get responsibility and authority early. My first day on the job as a prosecutor, I was assigned to investigate a homicide in the barracks, a, a buddy assisted drug distribution that ended in the death of a soldier. That was day one on the job. Wow. That was day one. 
the second case that I investigated and the first one that I took to trial was a rape case. So these are really significant matters, um, really significant crimes that I and every other prosecutor I knew was handling from the get-go. And it wasn't like, oh, go out and talk to the ancillary witnesses. It was talk to the victim, do the research, write the pleadings, do the argument, do the cross-examination of the accused, do the closing. It was everything from soup to nuts. And all of these proceedings are done internally. These are all within military courts. So the court-martial process is really a, a grab-and-go legal solution for the military. My first job as a prosecutor was in Germany. It was prosecuting soldiers accused of crimes in Germany. And then I deployed to Iraq and it was prosecuting crimes of soldiers accused to have done them in Iraq. And when I came back, when I redeployed from Iraq, I took a job as a defense attorney and that was great. I really enjoyed that. And, and as between prosecution and defense, I really prefer the defense side. Why is that? Because I believe in our legal process. I really do. I, I really think that our process is important. And military defendants, maybe more than other folks, have always done something good. Every one of them, regardless of what they're accused of, has put their hand up and said, I will do this for the public. I will defend the nation. I will put on the uniform for you. And there's always a kernel of good in them. And I appreciated that about my defense clients. When it comes to this process, is this something that you specifically learned while you were in law school? Or was this something that was done completely on the job? A little bit of both. Law schools typically don't have military justice courses. Some do, and I commend those that do. And I've got some former military colleagues who are out teaching at law schools with these sorts of military justice classes. The reality, though, is that the military justice process very much mirrors the federal criminal process. And so the rules of evidence are virtually identical. The rules of procedure are virtually identical. There are some unique aspects to military justice, certainly, but a lot of what I learned in law school was applicable. And then what I needed to learn, the JAG core within the Army taught me after I graduated from law school and passed the bar. And I learned a lot of it on the job as well. How long were you a military attorney before you left the military? I retired after 20 years, about 13 of that as a practicing attorney, three years in law school, on active duty, and then four years as a pilot in the beginning. So this is an incredible experience. You're coming to leadership in the law in a way that I haven't seen before. And so you have a wealth of information and a very specific type of leadership experience that you can bring to the table to a lot of law firms and lawyers, and you're doing that today. What are the things that you've learned and how are you applying them today to your clients? Yeah. One of the things that a lot of people assume about military style leadership or military leadership experience is that all it taught you is how to tell people what to do. And that is not true. It's not my experience. It's not what I was taught. It, it, it's not how I practiced leadership in the military and afterwards. Certainly a hierarchy that is built into the army is necessary. And you can rely on that hierarchy in certain instances. But even relying on that hierarchy requires a basis of trust. And outside of those really exigent circumstances of, let's say, combat, um, outside of those exigent circumstances, it really is imperative to lead through trust and transparency and compassion and empathy and create relationships with the people that you're working with and the relationships with the people that you're responsible for 
rather than relying on the authority of your position. That's a really weak way to lead. And I've seen leaders who have done that and have suffered for it. And I've seen organizations that had leaders like that and have suffered for it. So what I learned was to lead through inspiration, lead through a common commitment to values. And that enables close and collaborative teams. It enables inclusive environments and it enables um, success in difficult circumstances. How did you see these relationships fostered in the military and how do they translate into what you're doing today? If you can give me like a specific example. When I talk about building relationships of trust, it's about having transparent communications with the folks that you are leading. I'll give you two examples. One, I was the recipient. I was on the follower side. I was in Germany. I was a, a relatively junior leader. And one of the folks that I was reporting to did a really good job in the lead up to this. And this is key. In the lead up to, to the need to send me to Iraq. And, and mind you, I had just gotten married. I was separated from my new wife. And I was being told that I needed to go to Iraq three months ahead of everybody else in order to support another unit that needed an attorney. And I did that without complaint and willingly because I had a relationship of trust already established with this person. Right? And he established it with me through checking on me regularly in the year leading up to this and asking what my goals were, asking how I was doing. And developing that trusting relationship made it easier for him, not fun for him, but easier for him to say, look, Ben, now I need you to do something that's going to suck. And I need you to go early. I know you just got married. You know, this is what I need you to do. And it works. What it means is my well-being as a young officer, as a young attorney, wasn't suffering because I was being told to do this other crappy assignment by this guy who doesn't give a damn about me. That's something that I carried forward. In my leadership, for instance, I recently left the Department of Justice. That was my last full-time job at the Department of Justice, where I was a deputy director of a small office. We had about 15 attorneys that I was responsible for. And coming out of pandemic was a challenge. Coming back to the office was a challenge, not to suggest that we're fully out of it, but coming back to the office was a challenge and, and kind of nobody really wanted to do it. But in the same way that my supervisor had created a relationship of trust with me before, I had created a relationship of trust with my team before pandemic, during pandemic. I was always open with them in terms of what, what was at stake and what the decision-making process was and what the factors were. And so when I told them, look, I know you don't want to commute anymore. I know you don't want to be back in the office where we share space with other agencies, but the reality is this is what we're going to have to do. And having a relationship of trust means that People are not quitting because of that. It means that their well-being is not diminished because they're being asked to do something that they don't want to do. And our team morale, I think, stayed very high before, through, and after the key pandemic period. It's really about, from what I'm hearing, the establishment of trust is about ensuring there's consistency in people's understanding of your ability to support them and care for them. It's yes. not just like a once in a while touch point of, hey, how you doing? And do this now. It's like a consistent, long-term relationship building so that when there are difficult decisions that arise, 
there's a strong connection that allows the people that are following you to be able to move forward with a sense of security and confidence. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I wish I had said it like that. <laughs> I only got that way because of you. And it's important, but it's also important to remember that that my trust examples here are really relational trust, not performance trust, right. which is the other piece of what leaders need to establish with their teams. Performance trust of, can I can I trust you to do this thing? I need you to draft, you do the first draft of this brief, or I need you to draft these interrogatories. I need you to go out and do this deposition or handle this pleading or argument or negotiation. Can I trust you to do those things? That trust gets established very much in the same way over time. And you don't wait until the end to say, should I trust you now? Right. It, it's how do we establish that trust along the way? It's through good delegation. It's through good feedback. And it's through the leader giving trust first. We always want to talk about, leaders talk about I want my team to trust me. Okay, trust them first, right? Trust is a two-way street and it is imperative for leaders to be the first movers on trust. So on that point, let's get into it. What does leadership in law mean to you? Leadership in law is the four pillars of leadership for me. It, it's trust, transparency, empathy, and passion. If you can operate from those values as you approach every decision, every engagement, you're going to be happier. Your team's going to be happier. You're going to be more efficient. You're going to have less turnover. You're going to have more engaged clients and happier clients. It's just going to be like the world's going to be better. What is something that other lawyers seem to misunderstand about the work that you do? They think that leadership is disconnected from the business of law, for instance. So I, I work with a lot of new partners and Often they come to me with the focus on, I got to build my book. I, I've been doing all this solo contributor stuff. I've been doing the research. I've been doing the first drafting, all this stuff. And now I've got to supervise a team and build business and manage my workload and deal with conflict and feedback and delegation, all the kind of granular pieces of running your practice. Leadership really doesn't matter. I need to let, like make stuff happen. The reality is leadership is making stuff happen. And leadership absolutely is connected to the business because at the ground level, it's a partner. If you're dealing with paralegals and investigators who don't feel connected to you and don't want to support the thing that you're after, efficiency is down, uh, quality of work is down, engagement is down. If you're managing the practice group or the office or the firm, all of those things impact engagement and turnover. Turnover is a huge business cost. And all of those things also impact your client acquisition and retention. So you can tie leadership to any KPI you want just about, but what people forget is that it's not a soft skill. It, it's an absolutely critical business or, um, imperative, as well as a moral imperative. I, I say it's a moral imperative because I think that every person in a position of responsibility has an obligation to take care of those around them. If there was one thing you could change about the legal industry, what would it be? I don't think we treat each other very well. I don't think we treat our clients very well. I think that we are dismissive of them in many, in many ways. I think we see them as a pocketbook to pick sometimes. I know that's a little bit harsh, but really, I don't, I really think that our profession could do better in how it treats itself. And that's what I'm after. I agree with you. As a whole, clients don't feel very heard or respected by their lawyers. And, and there's a lot of fear around asking questions or getting billed for every second of their time if they misunderstand something. And so I think that there is a larger problem to be solved there. And I think leadership is a huge part of that. I agree. 
Um, but also we need to be better about how we represent our profession. And I will always go back to this. But my first day of law school, the dean said, and it was funny, but he said, don't make lawyer jokes and don't laugh at lawyer jokes because you know what? You're just reinforcing negative things about our profession. And it is time that we change people's perception of us. Absolutely. I wish. So, so something I told my when I was supervising defense counsel, one of the things I told them, and, and this is something that a, a philosophy that I've carried through in, in every aspect of my practice, take care of the client, not the case. Take care of the person sitting in front of you and what their needs are, not just the matter that they present to you. And that's in a personal situation. And that can also uh, play out in a corporate representation as well. But it's take care of what the, the client's needs, not the legal issue that they bring to you. They may overlap, but often you're going to be of much greater value to the client if you can empathize with them and identify what their underlying needs are, not just the legal issue that they're presenting to you. Yes. What is a piece of practical advice you can give to our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in law. Here's a 20-second tip for giving feedback. And this is very practical, very granular. There are three things to add to your feedback when you are giving feedback to, a, to somebody. It, it, it's a formula, right? It's number one, say thank you. Acknowledge the quality of their work. So thanks. You did a really good job on this deposition outline. I, it hit all the bases. And number three, connect it to why it matters. Thanks. You did a great job on this deposition outline. It saved me a lot of time in preparing. This is going to make it so much easier for me. 20 seconds is all it takes to increase the value of the feedback that you're giving, not just the qualitative value, right? You're actually giving better feedback when you tell them how it helps, but you're also creating connections of trust and reinforcing that relationship by being authentically appreciative of what they're doing. And believe it or not, that 15 seconds, that 20 seconds is going to make somebody's day, increase their engagement. And you do that enough times and all of a sudden they're not leaving your firm right away yes. and they're staying. And, and every month that they stay is saving you lost, lost revenue. Plus you'd be a better human. It's really one thing to say good work. And it's actually quite easy. Good work. Great job. Things like that. And that's nice. People like to hear mm -hmm. it. But when you use specificity, and then specificity coupled with impact, this is why it was a good job. It shows that you were really thoughtful and that you're being very genuine because you took some time to really understand why it was good. And I just want to emphasize that here because it is, it's so important and it can mean so much to someone. And it also cuts through that good job noise and really shows that you care. Yeah. It, this is a great example of how leadership is not rocket science, but it's thinking through how to act with empathy and trust and transparency in your daily day-to-day -day interactions and how to create accountability for yourself along the way. Absolutely. Ben, thank you so much for being on the show. I got to tell you, this flew for me. If anyone wanted to reach out, learn more about what you do, how can they connect with you best? Yeah, two ways. They should connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm in there all the time. Check my website out. It's bkgleadershipcoaching.com. And book a, book a call. Let's talk about where you're at. And I'll give you a couple more granular tips to take away. Wonderful, Ben. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much. I loved it. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together.
Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with almost five stars and over a thousand verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.